The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Breaking Views has launched its Predictions 2020 series of events. In the coming weeks, we will be taking the show on the road to London, New York, Toronto, Paris, Milan, Hong Kong, Sao Paulo and Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. Kicking things off in Mumbai, Prashant Ruya of SR Group, Sunil Metor, chairman of Punjab National Bank, and Shankar Sharma, co-founder of First Global, joined me and Rob Cox, our global editor in India's financial capital, to talk about the country's debt crisis and proposed radical solutions to jumpstart the economy. I'm Yuna Galani, and you're listening to The Exchange. So we're here to talk about debt. It's become a bit of a dirty word. 200 odd billion dollars of stressed loans. Um, It's crippled all three pillars of the financial sector. We have the state banks, the private banks, and the shadow banks, or as we call them here, the NBFCs. And this has all triggered a crisis of confidence in the economy. We have growth at below 5%, and somehow amidst all this turmoil, there have been some encouraging signs. We've seen a reset of the relationship between creditor and borrower in the country a little bit. And um, the challenge I think we're facing now is it feels like the pendulum has swung too far the other way. And that's a little bit about what we're here to talk about this evening. Um, We're going to keep it snappy, but Prashant, before we really look forward, I'd like to ask you a question. Maybe I could start with you. You took a lot of risk. You invested a lot of money, and um, and it went wrong. And we've seen a lot of entrepreneurs around the world, be it Richard Branson, uh, Masayoshi Son, uh, they've been through similar situations. And I guess the question I think many of us here would like to ask you this evening is, you know, what are the lessons that you have learned? So. Uh Maybe, uh, you know, it may be better just to start with, uh, we are living right now in a very different mindset and a very different time compared to when uh, we, all the major corporates took on uh, a lot of this growth and a lot of debt, right? So late, uh, late 2009, 2010, 2011, which was a period where most of these large uh, investments uh, uh, fructified, uh, was a time when India was in the 9 to 10 percent GDP growth. It was a time when uh, supply side was hugely restricted. Uh, predictions were being made that if you grew at 10 percent, then we would have serious shortages in all uh, in all of the sectors: power, uh, all of the steel, you know, all the sectors. Uh, and India couldn't manage with just imports, and that, and therefore, we needed more uh, more supply. And it was a time when the government was extremely encouraging for making these large investments. And frankly, the banks were extremely supportive of these, uh, of this national agenda. In fact, I remember there was a meeting held once when the Prime Minister, Mr. Manmohan Singh at that time, invited all the industrialists into a lunch meeting with an objective of spurring and encouraging them to make serious investment in the country. So that was the... That was the kind of uh, atmosphere we were in, slightly different to where we are now. 
but anyway we went ahead so based on that with that uh, with those projections with those growth projections and with that demand uh, what we all saw obviously large investments were committed uh, whether it was the power sector all the major infrastructure sectors and the debt is largely in these in these spaces it's not in the consumer yep. you know or pharmaceutical or whatever it's in these it's in these mm. infrastructure sectors right so these projects were kicked off uh, it was billions and billions of dollars uh, power the power sector alone was more than 100 billion dollars and um, and then we started facing a huge amount of regulatory changes uh, you know coal licenses were cancelled gas licenses were cancelled environment approvals were cancelled uh, land approvals were not coming through and these projects started facing very very serious delays and uh, that led to cost overruns that led to a huge amount of pressure on promoters to bring huge amount of additional equity which wasn't which wasn't really planned and uh, frankly the the cost of those regulatory changes which were made uh, in hindsight was pretty much left to the problem uh, as a problem for the promoters or for the banks because you mean as a as a borrower you take out a loan for a project and then if the project idles the loan continues to accumulate interest the loan continues to accumulate interest you need to pump in more money to keep the project uh, whole and uh, and that risk was just passed on no in no developed economy in the world would that risk get passed on back to the if somebody changes the rules then he has to pay for it he has to compensate for it mm. so anyway that then led to you know large number of these projects getting into serious difficulty there were some which went through they didn't get affected they were lucky they got through they are the heroes of which which we have today uh, but the, the people who got stuck uh, they they faced these problems and that's because they had to take on more leverage to keep the projects going the leverage levels went up uh, and then finally the last nail in the coffin was that the restructuring rules were changed so principally when these projects were started uh, these were all five seven year loans and everybody knows that infrastructure projects cannot be funded with five seven year loans but that's what the banks were permitted to provide at that time and the everybody's business assumption was that come five years or seven years those loans will get restructured or, or rolled over into longer term facilities but when that day came uh, the rules were changed and and the restructuring options were were taken away or uh, because of all these regulatory problems uh, obviously everybody said look this project looks less more risky you know more difficult and i think that's that's pretty much what happened to a lot of the problems that you face in the npas which you had there's always the case of you know some some projects where people have you know gone uh, have done incorrect things you know gold plated the project fraud whatever but i think that's a very small percentage of the real problem what i mean you, what you've described is uh really broadly how a, l a lot of companies have ended up where we are today i mean i think uh, a, a good number of those uh, facing financial difficulties now have had some of this regulatory risk as well um but personally, I mean, for you, I think we've all been reading your name and SR and Arcelor and, you know, your names in the press for, you know, many months now, two years, I think, because it's taken two years for SR Steel to move through the courts. You've lost 
you know, really one of your crown jewel assets. It was, it's a fabulous asset, and that's why one of the world's larger steel makers has been interested in buying that asset. Um, what lessons have you personally learned about the way your company was run? So firstly, uh, Una, what we, just to talk a little, maybe two minutes on, on what we did, we took a view, uh, we saw this coming in the sense we saw these things, it, and it happened over a period of, frankly, the real problem which all these projects faced was five, six years ago. It's not now. It got manifested, it took time, and we are finally seeing the effects of, these, of this on the lowest, you know, on the, at the trickle-down effect on the consumer. And that's what's happening in the last one year. Hmm. But it all got set up, you know, when these projects and these investments started getting to, uh, into uh, difficulty. We, when we went through this for, for, for two, three years, we, took, we, we felt like this was not going to get solved in a hurry. And so we, uh, we, as, we took a call that it's better to divest, it's better to delever, and it's better to monetize some of our key assets and, and reduce and repay the debt, right? So over a period of the last two, three years, uh, we have monetized assets effectively about $20 billion, and we have repaid debt to the extent of a lack and 40,000 crores. That's a massive deleveraging it's exercise. A ma I think it's the la probably the largest uh, deleveraging done, uh, certainly in India, but even globally it's been a, it's, it's a big number. And our call was, uh, it's better, and we were lucky I think because we took that call, I think ahead of, ahead of time. Had we been trying to do, to do that in this period or in the last one year, I think it would have been a lot more difficult. So we took that call, we, we delevered and we, I mean lessons, uh, Obviously, we, we took on a lot of risk. I guess a lot of people took on a lot of risk. Uh, we did not provide for any significant regulatory risk in our model. Uh, we took so on the, a risk, lot of, the risk premium wasn't big enough. Essentially. There wasn't any insurance for the for those for that risk. Right. Uh, and I think uh, uh, clearly we, we we took on a lot of project greenfield and brownfield risk. Uh, and frankly, most of the international investors who are coming, not one of them is willing to take that greenfield or brownfield. Mm risk in India. They're all looking for completed projects, cash flow, you know, NPV discounting of the cash flow, which is all great. But the risk was taken actually at the time when these projects were built and, the pro and when the supply got created. And uh, so I guess, I mean, going forward, uh, obviously we've looked at our model again and, and, and it's got to be a much more conservative approach uh, uh, going forward. So well, without monopolizing, not making you, this is not just the uh, Prashant show, so <laughs> not, but, but, but it, your story is so interesting and, and anecdotally it, it tells us a lot about, about what it's like to be an entrepreneur, how you take risk and how you deal with unpredictability to some degree. I guess there's one, you know, maybe one way to think this through is what would you do differently, you know, knowing what you know, I mean that's always easy in hindsight, but what would you do differently that... Well, there was a time when we were... There was a time when, you know, we, some, many people here would know that we exited Vodafone, another company which has been in the news. You made a lot of money on that. We did, we did, we did okay. And we, that company, that company got uh, valued at $18 billion at that time, public information, we, we exited. And we were sitting, we were a debt-free group and we were sitting on, you know, uh, whatever the proceeds of the sale was. And uh, frankly, we could have done nothing. Yeah, just put it in the bank. Just put it in the bank. Right, so that, I mean, you look back and you say, you know, you went through this, you went through this, you made these investments, uh, but, but 
the, the opportunity which everybody saw in India on, you know, in building these uh, great infrastructure uh, projects, assets, and the demand side, which is still, still very much there, was just a very, very compelling, compelling story. And, and so I think that's what really drove a lot of people. And going forward, I mean, you, you could say that you would be a little bit more conservative in your, in your risk-taking ability. But other than but that, I don't think we were, they were wrong decisions. I don't think they were bad projects. I don't think, I don't think those investment decisions or thesis was wrong. And the values which those companies have got, even today, you talked about SR Steel, but SR Oil, whichever company, Vodafone, whatever companies, these, these companies have been valued at $40 billion. And these are all companies which have been started at scratch, built over in the last two decades. So I'm going to come back to you because I think we do need to talk about how we, uh, India as a country, is going to make those opportunities look attractive again to investors because actually we need some animal spirits, we need some investment, and we need a basic appetite for risk, which doesn't seem to be there at the moment. But I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to move down the sort of res asset resolution stage, and I'm going to ask Sunil a question. So. Uh, I'm sure many of you know Sunil is the chairman of Punjab National Bank, but he's also been instrumental in the bankruptcy code here in India. And um, Sunil, are you happy with the way that the bankruptcy code today is working? So before I answer that question, I think since it has been a Prashant show so far, <laughs> I think it's important to sort of give We're a We're about to have the Sunil show. No, <laughs> a two-minute perspective of uh, what Prashant has said because it will actually dovetail into the whole stress asset situation. Please go ahead. I think uh, as far as the Indian entrepreneurs, animal spirits and what they were attempting to do, no question that uh, that was the right thing to do to sort of participate in India's growth. But there's, in addition to debt, there was another four-letter word called risk, which I think was not looked into with as much depth and analysis, sure. both from the promoters, the investors, and also from the banks. Uh, and, I, and I would say that we did have a very complex architecture of how to sort of finance, particularly the large projects, power, steel, ports, and all that that required long-term funding. And I think that predictability of risk and a risk analysis and a sensitivity analysis of assessing exactly what happened in a downturn and do the promoters have the ability to bring in additional equity and if they're not able to bring in additional equity, are they in a position to dilute and allow somebody else to take over those uh, projects? I think that's a great learning. And this is something that we, we obviously held back. We held those projects for far too long, and it sort of resulted in the complicated situation that uh, we've seen. You mean that the bank should have basically been able to offload those assets? I think the banks should have been far more stringent in terms of their exuberance there's no question the entrepreneurs have to be uh, so eager to take on, but the banks should have held them back to tell them that these are the risks. And if you do not have, you know, the first way out for any bank is the cash flows. If there are no predictable cash flows, then you've got to see what is your strong second way out. And if you don't have a strong second way out, I think then you sort of relook at the whole project in a manner. How do you sort of make sure you box in all the risks? And these are the great learnings from... 
Otherwise, we would not have this 200 billion dollars of a stress asset situation. Coming to the stress asset situation, and actually, I'm not the author of the IBC, but no, more no, of the Sashank report. report. So, but having delved deeply into the stress asset situation, am I happy with what is going on? I think it's been a very successful. Out of the 200 billion, about 50 odd billion has been uh, redeemed, resolved, and we are sort of looking at some, perhaps some more getting done pretty soon. Obviously, again, Prashant and SR was a great judgment by the recent uh, Supreme Court, which sort of allowed much more of an equity in terms of the resolution from a committee of creditors and made them much more uh, responsible for dealing with uh, the situation as it stands. And then the banks have been also quite fortunate that there have been investors on the other side who have picked up those assets. Do we have an equally large stream of investors and buyers on the other side? I think it's still a question mark. We'll have to see. The second is the entire IBC process, extremely well crafted. And the great thing about this is that they've also made amendments as were required based on the experience. Very positive. But I mean, like, do you, but obviously, like, we all know that nobody wants to get to that stage, yes. right? And actually, that's the kind, that's, 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 that's the, that's like step 11 and 12 is the end. Yes. You need to, we, do you believe that enough has changed and that the mindset of lenders and borrowers has changed enough that this is actually going to be resolved faster before we get to that stage? Yeah, I think the, uh, as you know, when we go through a difficult situation, the pendulum does swing the other way and we either get too pessimistic about which way the world is going or we still see that there is, uh, this is, or we look at it, that this is a time to actually do some course correction and this is the best opportunity for us to do that. In terms of how the behavior has changed, I think certainly from the promoter's perspective that they have, as Prashant himself has amplified, that there is, uh, if he were to redo everything again, he would perhaps do it differently than what he had done in the past. And, you know, uh, and I would say that it's great to hear that from Prashant, from somebody whom I've seen clearly over the last 30 odd years, his, not just Prashant, but his family as, as uh, from my Citibank days, SBI being on the SBI board, and then from my PNB vantage point. So I watched promoters like the Ruyas for a considerable time. This is the turning point of that. I think this particular point is where the promoters realize that you've got to lever yourself up, up to a stage and do not sort of put yourself into a situation where you cannot get out of that situation. And I think large groups have, even when uh, Chandra took over as the chairman of Tata Sons, mm. first announcement that he made in a public space was that I need to do my work on the deleveraging and look at some of the assets within the group. I think it was a very mature statement for the chairman to make it as he took over that large complex uh, group. And many of the other promoters, professionals and promoter families, are re-looking at that. So that's on do, the point. Do you think that that mindset shift is going to stick? Or do you think, I mean, like, for example, do you think that enough in the financial ecosystem has changed to mean that we will not repeat past mistakes in... I think in any... See, if, if, I, if I want... If I'm here to give you $100,000, you would be happy to accept it. Yeah, sure. But it's a question of 
what are the covenants on the or how do i give that to you under what basis so banks lenders investors private equity everybody has to deal with it far more differently and stringently than it has done in the past being part of the public sector system for the last 5 to 6 years i think there is a sea change that is sort of taking place in the way they never used to look at a risk adjusted return on capital you know you were lending how risky the project was whether you were putting a, a pricing premium on that uh, whether you had uh, you know you were sort of enforcing the covenants or was prashant going and meeting the chairman and say please i will give it to you in 6 months time or do i think promoters have been able to manage that system for a considerable time in no and and i'm and i'm not talking with disrespect it's been a kind of an engaged system that you've been able to get some leeway we have to be much more rigid about whatever is there as but at the same time if we see that it's nothing relating to and it's a issue which is cyclical that it's going to come back the banks have to be equally flexible in making sure that they're going to give some leeway because they have confidence that this is project is going to come back on stream or the cash flows will come back and hence we're not going to be in a difficult situation so there is a change that is taking place both on the promoters end and there's also a change in the lenders end and i can tell you from even the state owned system because you know we are vilified uh on many occasions as not being contemporary with whatever changes are taking place and we also sort of face the brunt of whatever the whatever has happened over the last i think with all of that notwithstanding if any of that has happened in the private sector we would have been completely in you know stuck but i think the fact that the public sector banks are still moving and moving ahead and doing things as best as they can i i'm still very optimistic and hopeful that if they can follow this course correction continue to do what the right things they have looked at now things will be much better and credit will start flowing when prashant is back with some big projects again let me bring shankar into this i mean you're you you're an investor so you allocate capital where you think you're going to get the best return i mean given some of what you've seen whether it's the bankrupt the change in the bankruptcy law or the or or the unpredictability to some degree of of government which in a sense is a little bit of what we've discussed i mean how how do you view all of this when you sort of pull it together as favorable positive when you try to think about allocating your capital in india or does it make you wary well i i think what sunil is talking about you know as a good city banker and uh, by the way you know sr gujarat was my first ipo and i think 87 or 88 so you know <laughs> that's what i that he was looking at from an investment side i was looking at from a risk side correct correct so yeah yeah so uh, you know the problem is all the problems are what prashant is talking about or we know of the telecom sector it is unmodelable risk unfortunately that is the problem because there is this entity which sits and decides things which no banker can predict so you have things which have which happened. entity is this but let's not get into okay. that entity but everybody knows what entity okay. i'm talking wink, about wink. so i have seen companies uh you know who were running a perfectly good business and because of an iron ore policy which was which prashant alluded to suddenly you're you're bust what the hell do you do i mean that's that's unfair ridiculous and completely unconscionable in terms of 
just like a, a bolt of lightning that happens on a business which is running perfectly okay. Or for that matter, in the telecom, we have seen uh, first one level of mess and now recently another level of mess with no heed to any commercial aspect of what those uh, you know, decisions can lead to. I mean, it's almost as if the commercials don't matter. What matters is, hey, this is what it needs to be done and what bank can model for the changes that have happened in telecom? Can, can you model for it? Could, you, could anybody have foreseen that suddenly all 2G licenses will be, will be cancelled or that the AGR judgment will end up meaning that a company like Power Grid will suddenly have to pay 4,500 crores just because there are 2% share of revenues coming from telecom. I mean, these things are unmodelable risks. It's as simple as that, no matter. I've been a banker. I mean, and, and we do this for a living. We run the same spreadsheets. There's no way you can model for these risks. So I think you have to be a nutcase to be thinking billions of dollars of investment can I just in the kind of environment we have been in India the last so, few but does years. That, does that mean, yeah, so th it's interesting. I was in New York on Monday. I spoke to a very, very large global investor who was, who was quite bearish on India for some of these, for some of the discussions we're, we're having now. Um, you know, what would it take for you to, what would it take for you to feel more comfortable? I'll tell you, I mean, if, if and only if the whole uh, process of, even if let's say, Telecom licenses, there was something wrong. I, I, I don't believe there was anything wrong. That's a different point. Even assuming there was something wrong, why cannot a decision be taken that I'll levy a penalty on you? Because you put in a few billion dollars. I'll levy a penalty on you, which is the way the US works. Wall Street robs everybody all the time, and then they're supposed to pay $2 billion. Hey, I, I think that's great. That's, that is the way capitalism should work. Why couldn't a decision be taken in iron ore or in 2G or in other similar matters that look, hey, there is something wrong here, but considering that you put in so much capital, I'll impose a penalty on you. Then as a businessman, you take a commercial decision, whether this penalty is worth it or I just surrender my license and I go back to Norway or wherever I've come from. Actually, you know what, but I mean, a lot of the examples you've been giving, given uh, are, are, are old examples, but actually one of the things that's striking... AGR is a recent example. Yeah, well, exactly. So, but, but what is really striking is that we're actually, many people I've noticed are still having this discussion now, whether it's happening at individual state levels. Um, people have been talking about some of the events that have been happening in Andhra Pradesh, some of the events that have been happening in Maharashtra, and there is this um, concern about sanctity of contract. Um, no, so one second, so let me, let me finish what I said. The question Rob asked me was, therefore, as an investor, what do you do? Yeah. As an investor, you just stop looking at these things. Exactly. I mean, that's the whole point, that I'd rather buy Hindustan lever and be happy. Because at least, you know, in a, in a consumer business, there is no such risk. That's, that's the point. And if capital doesn't come into these sectors, I don't think Prashant Ruya can himself be writing the big checks. He will need a bunch of investors to come in and, uh, you know, participate. So this whole infra muddle, power muddle, road muddle, I don't think can be solved. By the way, and the final problem is the government is the biggest debtor of all these companies anyway. The whole infra mess, if the government started paying its dues, okay? I mean, we have investments in some infra companies. I mean, I know the kind of arbitration claims we are looking at. You're looking at a few thousand crores. Now, why is it there? Because the government reneges on its contracts. So imagine, I mean, on the one hand, your PSU banks are supposed to take money. On the other hand, it's again a government-owned you know, you know, entity, this side, government on the other side, NHEI will not pay or some other. It's ridiculous. I mean, why can't the government start paying on time for a road that it got built or some other thing that it got built? I think, you know, uh, really the investor is not looking at these sectors. 
that's the reality. If you look, I mean, yes, there are always one, there's always an outlier, one or two companies and they're looking at them, but or they are looking at when everything is, when all the risk is behind, then we'll come in and, you know, we'll- But that's what we'll, all, the, so all the sovereign funds, we'll when they come in, they is, buy a 100% finished yeah, project. Is, which is fine. But where the investor is going is with, with, with the consumer story. And that's still pretty much intact. So whether it's financial services, whether it's, uh, you know, or the consumer goods side, or whether it's healthcare, or whatever the other sectors are, insurance, uh, which uh, Sunil knows very well, I know. Yeah. That's, so where, that's where he's looking at. Prashant, I'll just respond to that. I think you're absolutely right. I think, see, whatever happens is that when there was, when the telecom started, there was basically a licenses that were being given out in the first round, second round, third round, fourth round. Everybody thought that this was a valued license and you sort of continue to re uh, take the bids up and everybody sort of bought those at, at phenomenal prices. When, um, when you sort of uh, sold your stake in Vodafone, there was an, an exuberance from that company that bought that, uh, you know, stake and there was of course a valuation. So the investors also run a valuation story in this market. We've got businesses which are running losses today, but the entire valuation model of investors is quite different. So investors have their own interests in mind in terms of when they can exit by making an upside. They're not seeing the full project to its fruition. You've got a seven year time frame, you want to get out and make your money. This is where the investors have. As far as the banks, when they get into debt, they're basically stuck like a promoter. So we've, and they, unfortunately, they've had this position that they're taking the, at least the promoters have an upside. Possible upside. A possible upside. But the, but the, they run the, the biggest risk because they're funding 70% and they have debt returns. Correct. And that is, I think, not priced very well. So this whole element going forward needs to, the whole dimensions need to change. Where a promoter or an investor or, a, or somebody who's taking risks looks at this uh, system and say, I'm sorry, this is not bankable because this, these are six things that need to be done. We need to sort of put that on the table and not scramble for, just because there are licenses being given, we go scramble just because you happen to be related and, and well ingrained in the system that you have this comfort level of getting a license. I think that story is over. Now, just finishing my point. That from here on, I think the, it's an even Steven stable that is there. If you want to sort of get into that project, put your terms and conditions, otherwise walk away from that project. But do not put money on that if you think that are these imponderables that are going to be there. And I agree what you said, there are many issues that need to be resolved. Anything that the state reneges on the contract and do not have the predictability of what's the uh, contracts are or cash flows, I think the people who suffer is really the bottom of the pyramid, the SMEs, the MSMEs who are sort of part of this end of the chain from a cash flow point of view. I think they need to be very careful in sort of, uh, in sort of making these kind of statements and also enforcing that in this marketplace. So a lot of things needs to be done. We haven't spoken about regulatory architecture. Yeah. There's a lot that needs to be done in sort of making our regulatory architecture much more contemporary in line with whatever the changes that are taking place. So there's no question a lot needs to be done now. But this is the opportunity because we are facing the pain now. This is the opportunity to do whatever it is. So let's speak up, speak out, 
and say this is what requir is required to be done and then get those okay, things so done. Okay, so I'm just going to ask uh, one question and I want a one-line answer. Um, yes. Prashant, if you could change one thing about the sort of investment process today that you think would help bring uh, investment back into big projects, what would it be? It's not going to be one thing. It's got to be three things. Okay, but make it It's got to be confidence to get the investors to come back and invest. And that investor is going to be the Indian entrepreneur. Yeah. It's not going to be the international investor. A second, it's got to be a solution to the regulatory problem which, which we talked about. And I still don't see that clearly visible. Mm. And some of the risks which uh, Sunil mentioned was exactly that. But we still don't have an answer how we can predict those things and how can we uh, safeguard uh, against that. Uh, and third, I think we've got to get credit back in the system. There's no credit for projects today. I mean, that's the reality. Despite everything what anybody might say, if you have a project finance today, there's no money available to back it. Okay, I'm going to come to... Sh uh, Let alone equity. There's no debt and there's no equity. Both sides don't exist right now. Okay, I'm going to come to Shankar in a minute. Sunil, what's on your wish list for, for the banks? What would uh, make it easier going forward? So I think the, uh, the um, aspect that is sort of perhaps the most important, you are absolutely right that the pendulum has swung a lot, so we need the pendulum to sort of come somewhere in between, for banks to feel far more comfortable in terms of taking somewhat more risks that are there, and they'll have to be judgmental. A lot of them will have to be judgmental, so that element will need to sort of come back. There's no question that at this point of time, there is a little bit of a conservatism, as Prashant himself said, that there's conservatism coming into him. So we all need to be far more conservative in our risk appetite. The second thing is that we need to also look at it from an environment point of view, exactly what is the regulatory architecture, how predictable is whatever the investments that need to be made or mm -hmm. the exposure that needs to be undertaken for any large projects. The third is we also need to sort of look at how do we get in long-term funding. Banks are, have liabilities coming from you know, the deposit side, but we certainly need long-term funds. DFIs, we had, you know, the old DFIs. days, the domestic financial institutions who were sort of giving much more longer-term financing for... Sort of like the effectively the infrastructure lending. The infrastructure lending. Those are, have got merged or subsumed into commercial banks. I think we need to sort of revisit. The other aspect is how do we have a much more vibrant debt market? We, sh we need to have an asset trading platform whereby both for performing and non-performing debt, there's an easy flow of debt that sort of moves so that we're not sort of sitting on that debt and we're not able to sort of, if our balance sheet cannot sort of withstand that, for whatever reasons, we have a capital constraint, then I should be able to sort of take it on an exchange and get a fair market value and put it on somebody else who's willing to take debt on their own books. Mm. So there's, these are few, I would say a lot more is there. But in the interest of time, I'll allow Shankar to sort of say his piece. Actually, I, I was going to ask Shankar a different question, yes. which is, uh, we are where we are today, and the economy is really hobbled. There's really no confidence in it at the moment. What is the answer to kick-starting the economy here today? I think there is a feeling that we need to do something big. In my view, devalue the currency. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. It's very simple. It will... It will set off a whole virtuous cycle. Uh, first of all, it will bring back some inflation. This country has 
killed inflation, but in a growth economy, I don't think, I don't think you can sustain inflation of this kind, what we have seen in the last four or five years. The war on inflation has become a war on growth. So you've taken a very Western-centric economic thinking and imposed it on India. So your nominal GDP growth is now about 6% or 7%, which is ridiculous. When you bring back inflation, you will go back to about 14-15%. So say your economy recovers to about 7%, 7% inflation, 6-7%, 13 to 15%. That's good growth because everything is nominal. Your top line is always nominal. Your bottom line is always nominal. We always measure all growth in nominal terms. Only the nominal GDP deflated with the inflation, you're going to come to the real GDP. Otherwise, all data we look at is nominal tax, tax revenue, growth, whatever. Bring back inflation, that the easiest way is a devaluation. Uh, you will boost net exports without net exports. It's the biggest contributor between 2004 and uh, 11 was net exports to your GDP growth. And that was the brilliant years of our growth. But Shankar, that doesn't, I mean, a couple of questions of that. Yes. I think it's a very interesting idea, de, you know, depreciating the, the rupee. But if you have foreign denominated debt, you're in real trouble. So we I don't have, know if what to, to degree. Um, nothing. Is it not regressive in the sense that this is, you know, I don't know, the biggest input may be imports of oil. I mean, does that not hit the poor worse than, than, than the rest? No, no, no. There is, there, is a, there is a very short-term cost to it. But what will happen is suddenly overnight you would have made India, first of all, in terms of export competitiveness, vastly more competitive, number one. You are, and you're hurting on that front. It's an overvalued currency but as it, it is. But isn't that where you need reforms? You need to make it easier to do business in India. I, devaluing you the know, currency does it quickly. Like, yeah, but you need but something it does not quick. Change the Your risk. patient is dying on the table. You need something quick. All the right. policy measures in India will take five years. You don't have five years. So if I'm a policymaker, I have to get growth coming back quickly. So now here is what the thing is. India is a difficult place to do business in, right? The only way to make it attractive is make it cheaper. How do you make it cheaper? You know, devalue the currency. You will have a slew of capital coming in at the in the capital account because suddenly you got twenty percent cheaper. <coughs> now, 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 the point is that that's exactly what India did in nineteen ninety one, and see what happened after that. We had two devaluations back to back. I think in a matter of fifteen days. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are you don't have monetary bullets. You don't have fiscal bullets. But doesn't that hurt the pride of the nation? And wouldn't that be the kind of thing? I mean. Donald Trump certainly wouldn't want to see the dollar devalue, but I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just wondering how would that? I don't see what the pride of the politically got with, the, with the value of your currency. I mean, if it yeah. gets the job done, I mean, we have to segregate. I mean, now, in fact, that the other big problem in the last five, seven years has been the whole commingling of politics and business. Mm. You know, so that you start thinking politics and business as two sides of the same coin. I think yeah. you have to disaggregate the two things. National pride comes out of growth. I remember going to the U.S. several times in the period of 10, 2009, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And I was treated like I'm the monarch of some, some great nation because we were growing 9 or 10 percent. The U.S. was struggling with like 1 or 2 or, I mean, the rest of the world was like at minus. Yeah. And everybody was saying, how the hell are you guys doing it? I want, that is my pride, not the stupid pride of saying that the rupee should be 72 or 65 or 80. Where do you, where do you stand on devaluation? Question. <laughs> Uh, well, it's a it's a quick bullet, I guess. I, I I haven't really thought through what all the implications are, so I'm not going to hazard a guess. But uh, I feel you know we need to certainly do something to get the consumer side, demand side going extremely quickly, and uh, this creates an opportunity. Huge investments are going to take time. It's not going to come in a in a hurry. 
Because I mean, still have the problem of unpredictability. You still aren't sure whether. So make it cheaper. So everything got a price, right? <laughs> so I guess you reduce. Yeah, I mean, there it is. Less to lose. Exactly. But so fundamentally, if yeah. like competitiveness is an issue, you'll make it more competitive. So in the, the devaluation makes you more competitive. Yeah, but I mean, if the if structurally, if the is is India really strong enough to be competitive? Like, d does it just mask yeah, some of the weaknesses? All the, the all those changes take time. Yeah. Problem is you do not have. Or the other thing is, of course, you, India still overall debt to GDP is around 67, 68 percent. You still have some room on that front, so increase it by five percent point. I mean, do, you would need to do something of that kind. Just sitting and, you know, uh, getting people to you know think animal spirits is not going to make it happen. Yeah. If I can, can I just? Yeah, of course. Push, you want to go? Push no. So I think, you know, uh, there are obviously uh, suggestions that will come for the big bank stuff and, and uh, Shankar may have a point and a point of view on that, but there are counterpoints to that as well on a, on a uh, repeat depreciation. The elements that, you know, you spoke about in, in terms of the consumers, the money going into the consumer's hands, and mm. that's why uh, Hindustan Unilever seems to be the stock that is spoken about and many others who are in that space. So, if you look back several years ago when the Prime Minister or the government did this initiative about the Jandhan accounts, the, the accounts that had to be opened, you know, at that point of time, I was on the board of SBI, we were questioning whether who's going to pay the cost of opening the accounts. And today we have about close to 350 to 400 million new accounts that are there. The most unemployed the disempowered have now a bank account. They now have aspirations. They're sort of going out and wanting to buy a home, wanting to get it financed. So I think somewhere there is a trickle-down effect that is taking place. It obviously, in a country and economy of complexities of our size, it's very difficult to do this one big bang. It sort of has political repercussions, even when there was some of the other stuff that was done. There are people who have a different perspective. But I certainly believe that some of these have a long-term impact. And I, and I can see it from because if you look at the bank balances of people who have those accounts now, have grown significantly. And, they, and that's where the savings are going to be used for consumption. We need to obviously sort of look at much more from a retail perspective as to what, how do we sort of get consumers to get the confidence to go out and buy a lot more. There's, it's a lot that can be done if Shankar has some good thoughts on that. I think that's something that, you know, I'm sure people will take note of. Uh, so make goods cheaper and people will buy it. So I just want to add one thing to what Shankar actually yeah. said. You know, traditionally Indian market is a domestic growth, domestic consumption market. Whenever we ran our models in the past, we were always looking at yeah. 75 to 80% domestic sale yes. and 15 to 20% export. Correct. So, while export is certainly important, but the main engine, the main driver was the domestic demand. And I think that's the one which is really affected right now. And the, the slowdown in the growth is much more because of that 80% yeah. demand engine slowing down as opposed to just exports. I'm not saying you should not look at your idea. No, no, no. I mean, look, it's saying. not an either or. There are, there are many problems. You will need to have bullets for each of the problems, Absolutely. but you need them quickly. That's yeah. that. <laughs> That's the point. Is privatization one of the options? I mean, uh, you know, you, you know, there are quite a few state banks and others. Uh, Air India. I mean, there's there is this sort of sense that the state uh, is involved in a lot of industry. Is that would that be one great way to signal 
Yeah. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think we've got to have not just an identification of three to six immediate sales of PSUs, but there has to be a roadmap. The more, see, people look forward. If you have a roadmap in terms of how you want to uh, bring your ownership down from wherever it is to less than 51% in some of these state-owned enterprises, let there be a very clear roadmap. And this is how this is going to happen. People will start looking at that. The second piece is very important is from a governance point of view. From both regulatory and a governance, what are the changes that are taking place to make all these entities far more productive in whatever they are doing. And hence, they're sort of giving a return on equity to whoever is going to buy into those. So governance piece in terms of the governance measures that needs to be looked into, that becomes an important element. No, but my, my point is that there is no money with the private sector, right? Let's, let's accept that. Who's got the money, if at all? That's a government. In fact, the government, instead of selling these assets, they should be building up these assets to produce more steel or to have more airline capacity, to have more telecom capacity. I think divestment today is a cop-out. That means that you cannot run anything, let alone a simple company. How do you run a whole country like, you know, as complicated as India? In my view, because the private sector has no money, the government has to step up and do the spending directly by itself. Well, wouldn't this and, 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 and by yeah. the way, PNB will be very happy lending directly to the government, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let these two guys sit and sit, sit and do business. We will we'll all sit and you know have. You but know, I suppose the, the, the point Sunil is making is that that would be a signal for private money to get, I know, global. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I, so that, so so let the government be a so, stakeholder. Let PNB. Give the, give the loan and let the rest of us come in with a little bit of equity sliver with the comfort that the regulatory risk has been arbitraged away because it's now these two guys sitting and doing Because now they have skin in the game. They have skin in the game. Right. That's the point. So I think, again, it comes down to how do you sort of improve that if you're going to make them far more vibrant. There's a elements of empowerment, governance, the whole element of slew of factors that have, they just don't become productive and, you know, they just don't become so attractive overnight. There's a way forward. You know, the government looks at all these businesses like a cash cow. So, there's a telecom, just keep taking money, spectrum, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Let those guys have equity stakes in these businesses. Significant stakes. Then they will not be out there looting these companies. It's the market idea. will impose discipline. <laughs> For sure. It's a fact. Well, on that note, I think we... Uh... What, what, what? <laughs> Uh, no, on, on that note, I think we can. Uh, on that positive on note. On that positive, <laughs> constructive note, I think we can uh, say thank you to our panelists, Prashant, Shankar, Sunil. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Exchange. You can find more episodes on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. You can also find more of our views at breakingviews.com. I'd like to thank Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. Find us here next time at The Exchange and stay tuned for more Breaking Views 2020 predictions.